another episode of the Appalachian Agris. I'm one of your hosts, Cody, and I'm joined by my buddy, Rob. How you doing, man? Not too bad. We are back again on a very, very cold Sunday morning. It's like 16 degrees here. Everything has frozen. And uh, just as I thought my issues with rainwater collection were over for the year, we get another another monkey wrench thrown in the plans and everything's frozen up. But Yeah, I did not expect this snow at all. Yeah, the snow's not that bad here. We didn't get that much snow, but like I said a bucket out that I was, it's not really a bucket, it's a planter um, that I'm going to drill holes in and uh, put some, transplant some blueberry bushes into and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, that thing probably has eight inches of water in it right now. Well, eight inches of ice and it's frozen solid. And I'm just like, son of a bitch, man. So I'm out there trying to uh, get my chickens water, get my dogs water. It's just a nightmare. I hate bringing that stuff inside to fill it up and take it out. But this weather just kind of caught me off guard and I thought it was bullshit, honestly. I was like, there's no way it's going to get that cold. I did, too. My fiance and I were supposed to go hiking yesterday, and I was like, we'll, we'll give it a – I'm like, Wednesday, I was like, oh, we'll see. Like, it, it, there's no way it's really going to snow. Maybe it'll just turn to nothing, and sure as shit, it snowed here. Yeah, and up in the Shenandoah, it's even colder, and, like, it snows more easily. So, like, you know if we got snow – it's definitely the trails are definitely covered up there oh yeah and uh i'm not sure what trail you're gonna do but if you like try to do anything like old rag or um bear fence like anything with significant rock formation it's just gonna be a sheet of ice yeah i remember when we did old rag was a year or two ago had just rained i think and god it was slick as shit yeah the rock scramble is always slick. Like you got to go when it's dry or just prepare to be extra careful. No. But, uh, that actually ties in well to what we're discussing today. Um, we're kind of discussing the, just to set the stage, the, the what next after you collect your rainwater. So I'm a big rainwater uh, collection fan. Um, I know Trigy's getting his setup or just got his setup and he's been looking at like uh, first flush type stuff and I think he just started it. But um, I'm, today, that's the easy part really. Like any, it's not hard to collect rainwater and there's only so much that you can, uh, well, there's quite a bit you can talk about when you go deeper in the, in the weeds and whatnot. But the part that gets overlooked most of the time is what next so like you have all this water and now you got to move it and today i just wanted to sit down with rob and we'd kind of discuss uh some different ways that you can move water around your property um some efficient some not so efficient and um i guess i'll just give a little background um as most people know i was a firefighter for pretty good amount of time and uh I spent about, I'd say I spent a majority of my career either on an ambulance or driving a, an engine, like a pump, um, a pumper. So my job was really to move water. This is really what I did. And then, you know, Rob did this as well. Um, so when we went to learn about that stuff, we did learn a lot about hydraulics, the theory of water and moving it around different places and some things that you may not consider if you're not in that line of work or have that sort of background. So um, I think we actually can provide a uh, pretty good source of information uh, to help you guys think about some things you may not have known. Yeah, give you stuff to consider so so that when you're trying to figure out what the best system is going to be, you know, you're not like surprised by different issues and whatnot. Yeah. And if you're having issues, this might be able to explain why you're having issues. And like, we don't have to, we probably will touch into like 
a little bit deeper into the subject than you'll need. But the key takeaways is mostly the principles um, that we're going to talk about. So um, like I said, for just to set the stage on this, we're just going to assume you have water in a container and now what, what next? So I guess the, the first thing I would say is hopefully you have some grade on your property and you can utilize gravity. That's the best way in my opinion to, to move water is, you know, use natural energy to move it. Like you don't want to do anything if you can help it. You want it to be as easy as possible. And so to do that, you would need gravity, obviously, and you're going to have to uh, use a pipe of some kind. Um, that's what I would consider the best. You know, if you don't have that and your land is flat, uh, we'll start with the easiest, simplest, uh, most cost-effective way. And I, I'm doing it right now as a temporary solution to a problem that I have. Um, and that's essentially just five gallon buckets. <laughs> um, I collect my water off my house and the house is at the same grade as my garden. And one of my gardens is actually above the collection point of my water collection. So um, what I've done is I have a second container that is further uh, upgrade, like higher in elevation. And I will actually take uh, five gallon buckets, empty one container, five gallons at a time, walk it up the hill and dump it in the other one. It's super ineffective. And it's, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's really slow. You know, you're getting 10 gallons at the most at a time. So if you've got a, a 300 gallon tank, you're trying to, uh, to move, you're going to make 30 trips one, you know, or 61 way trips, um, 30 loaded, 30 unloaded. And it sucks. It takes a while. Something people don't think about is a lot of times if you're trying to get the most out of your system in this kind of thing is, um, if your first container isn't that big, like in my situation, it's only 55 gallons. Um, I'm out there doing it in the rain. <laughs> which makes it even worse because um, I want to get every gallon that I can get. And, you know, if I wait till the rain's over, I may have missed out on another 50 gallons if I, as opposed to if I empty it as it's being filled. <clears throat> I think we talked about this once before, but I think we both agree to just like skip the 50 gallon barrel and go straight to a larger container if you can. Yeah, in hindsight, I would not have done a 55-gallon barrel. The real reason I did a 55-gallon barrel is I was getting a lot of pushback on my, from my wife. Um, mm. And she was like, I do not want one of these big IBC containers right next to the house, even though it was in the back of the house. And so I found this, like, sort of cute-ish, gimmicky 55-gallon drum and designed for rainwater collection. And... Uh, that was able, I was able to use that and like kind of compromise and meet in the middle, but it is definitely not the way to go. It's just not, not big enough. They're not cheap either. No, they're not. I think they're like, I mean, last time I looked, they were pretty expensive. I think they're a hundred bucks <laughs> yeah, for a 55 gallon drum. And you can find IBC containers all day long on Craigslist for a hundred bucks. And that's not even a great price. That's just kind of where people start their asking price is a hundred bucks a piece for 275 gallon IBCs. Um, <clears throat> so I definitely, like Rob said, just skip that, go straight to the IBC. Um, yeah, you're looking at about a hundred bucks. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, um, yeah like I said, I, I don't recommend hauling water if at all possible. It's just very inefficient and um, it's frustrating. Like I've got enough to do that I can't automate 
you know? So anything that I can make easier and save time and uh, that allows me to put energy in other places of the homestead, I'm going to take that opportunity. Um, so what I did um, to resolve this issue in the beginning was I went down to Lowe's. I got a little pump. I think it's like one horsepower, like seven gallons a minute, something like that. And I was like, all right, there's an outlet here. I'll run a hose from that 55 gallon drum to the pump and draft it out of the pump or suck it out of that 50 or draft it out of that, that barrel or suck it out of that barrel. And I'll pump it uphill to the next, uh, the next container, kind of like a above ground cistern or something. And that worked really good. Um, until both of my water hoses broke, they eventually just wore out. And now I'm back to using buckets. So it works, but, um, I don't even recommend that method. And this is kind of where we get into, um, the experience and I should have known better, but I didn't think about it until it was too late. This pump I have uses garden hoses, and I think that's the number one mistake people make with water collection system, is trying to use water hoses. Um, the reason I say that is whenever you move water in a tube, the benefit is you now have complete control of where it goes. You know, you can send it anywhere you want, more or less. Um, the downside is, if you're using garden hoses, the friction from the water traveling through the hose is going to fight you and it's not gonna be as effective as you think. So the first principle that I'll say about moving water through hose is the larger the hose, the less friction loss. Yep. I think, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, I was going to hit on the garden hose thing real quick. It just, it's, like I said, they're just not designed to, like, they're designed to take water from, like, a fairly proximal location and be able to use it in, in some capacity. They, like, it's not really designed to, you know, move water around a large scale area. And I, I think that's what most people, I couldn't even tell you what another option is really. I'd have to like look into it, but I know like most people are going to quickly jump to garden hose. And as we're getting into your first point, like, you know, that small of a diameter, you're going to, uh, you know, come into so much friction loss that it's going to be really ineffective to do that. Yeah. And, to, to put it in perspective, um, there's a formula that we don't have to get into, but the, the concept of the formula is you take a series of numbers, different variables, and that you can use those variables to determine your friction loss in the, in the hose that you're using. And we did this all the time when we were pumping fire trucks and whatnot. The principle is, I guess the main thing you need to know is in that formula, depending on the size of the hose you use, there is a coefficient that determines the friction loss. Um, so two inch hose will have this coefficient, four inch hose will have that coefficient. So just for example, to use nice round numbers, um, if you're using an inch and three quarter fire hose, your coefficient will be roughly 15 and a half. If you use a inch and a half, your coefficient will be 24. So the higher the coefficient, the more friction loss. So that one quarter of an inch difference, you know, was about 50% more friction loss. And we're talking relatively large hoses already. So that's a very small difference. So if you look at the difference between a one inch or a two inch line and a garden hose, do you know the coefficient of a garden hose? I do not. I had to look it up. 
<laughs> and it blew my mind. Do you have any guesses at all? Well, I know we said inch and a half was 24, right? Mm-hmm. And that's high. For those of you who don't know, that is, we're used to working with numbers that are less than one or less than, easily less than 10. So 24 is already very high. Yeah, I, dude, I don't have a clue. What if I told you it was 1,100? What? The coefficient of a three-quarter inch garden hose is 1,100. Oh, my God. The coefficient in a garden hose is so high that <laughs> if you're flowing 12 gallons a minute through 100 feet of a three-quarter inch garden hose, the friction loss is 16 PSI you're already losing 16 right off the bat on that low of a flow. Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to use that same flow of 12 GPM and put it through an inch and a half, your, your PSI per 100 feet is almost zero. That's how big of a difference this makes. Like, it, it, it cannot be overlooked. I would say it's crucial to understand, like, do not use a garden hose. And I know you brought up, Rob, like, well, then what the hell are you supposed to use? Um, I guess option number one, you could try and get some fire hose. I wouldn't do that. Right off the bat, I'm telling you, I have fire hose that they were going to throw out and blah, blah, blah. I still don't use it for that. I use it for other stuff. But if you go down to your local ag store um, or co-op, they have transfer pumps that are gas powered. Um, I still don't recommend this as being the best option, but it's a damn good one. And uh, they have these ag pumps anyway that are, that are for transferring uh, liquid fertilizer to different tanks. And they're gas powered like a generator or like the, uh, the uh, pump on a brush truck. And they get about 60 to 80 gallons a minute and the intake and discharge is usually between an inch and a half to two inches. Hmm. And they sell the hose with it and it's really affordable. I think like a hundred feet of the hose was like 27 bucks for inch and a half. So if you just know that's what you want to do, that's the route I would go. I would go get yourself an ag pump, that is gas powered. I mean, maybe not with gas prices, what they are right now, but <laughs> yeah. it's um, probably cheaper to just use the well. But uh, anyway, that being said, like, don't use a garden hose. If you're sold on using a pump, that's kind of what I would recommend. I was going to go that route. I went down and looked at them. The pumps were right around two to $500, depending on what you were looking to get. Um, so all in all, you're looking at like probably 600 to $800 to move water. So I don't think it's the best option personally, but it is a option if you just don't mind spending more money, I guess. Um, I may be getting ahead of ourselves, but like, uh, is this pipe or I guess it's hose that you're just like running on top of the ground. Like it's not. Yeah. Okay. This is literally just blue hose. It looks like the world's worst fire hose. It's a really <laughs> low quality hose. Um, if you don't know any better, you wouldn't really know. But if you've ever like felt fire hose and felt when it's charged and pressurized, like, it's very, very durable, very tough, hard to bend. Um, that's mostly because of the pressure. But um, even when it's dry and doesn't have water in it, it doesn't bend super well. It's not like a, a very malleable material. I don't know how to describe it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's designed to do stuff that you hopefully aren't doing with this type of hose. But right. um, it's got to stand up to a lot more, you know, abuse yeah that's that's a perfect that's exactly the word i was looking for yeah so that is like i said one option 
The other option would be to use um, polypipe, which Rob and I have used quite a bit at work installing agricultural watering systems. And so this, uh, this polypipe is essentially, um, we typically use inch and a quarter, but I think you can get it in uh, inch and a quarter, inch and a half, and two inches, I think. Um, it really doesn't matter as long as you're using one of those sizes, it's gonna be far superior than a garden hose. The, uh, the pipe itself is super rigid. Um, does that just lose all comms? Mm -mm. That's really weird. All right, um, anyway, so the pipe itself is super rigid and uh, it does not bend at all. And it doesn't really, I would not recommend it for above ground use just because it it comes in a coil and you'll never get that coil out um oh yeah no no fucking way it's a bitch dude like even getting it out to bury it is a giant pain in the ass um yeah i don't know how it just will not take a new form it, it stays in that coil and you have to roll it out. You can't just pull it like an extension cord, even though you shouldn't do that either. You should roll that out, but whatever. It doesn't matter. You just can't get it straight. It won't get straight. So you really have to put this stuff underground, in my opinion. Um, yeah. So the, the good news is when it's underground, you can get it below the frost line and you don't have to worry about the pipe being drained during the winter time. Um, I would still drain it to an extent, but if you even drain it the least little bit and it's 18 inches or below your local frost line, it's not going to freeze and bust. So it's pretty low maintenance and this stuff is super durable. It's probably uh, at least a quarter of an inch thick around the walls and you have to use like a ratchet cutter to cut it like a PVC ratchet cutter. Yeah. Um, the plus side is it's far less expensive than PVC and you don't have to do a bunch of gluing. The downside is you got to find barbed fittings, uh, brass barbed fittings, which I'll make a note right now to post a picture because I got one on the work truck. Brass, brass barbed fitting. Um, you have to use this specific kind of fitting and some clamps to attach pieces together, but it's faster and cheaper than PVC. And I think it's Personally, I think it's more durable. Like, it, you could run over it and it's not going to crack and break like PVC would. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, like I said, the con is it, it pretty much has to go underground. So, um, Which may not be a con to everybody because, for me, that's a pro. Well, I mean con as in digging. Like, I don't want to. Oh, well, yeah. I'm just assuming that all the work going into this is like gonna suck, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I when I do mine, this is what I'm eventually moving to. Um, I'm a moving. I'm moving to a completely polypipe system that I'll rent a trencher and put it all underground and install an irrigation system off of that polypipe system for my garden. So it'll be no power involved at all. Um, I have to do a couple things to get my water back on the high ground. Um, but I have a plan for that. I just got to install some gutters on a different building. And now my water is elevated instead of downhill or on the same grade. Uh, but polypipe is awesome. Um, that's really what I'd recommend. I think it's like 70 cents a foot roundabout. And it comes in 400 and 600 foot rolls. Uh, we get it from a local building supply. Uh, its primary use is agriculture, though. So I would call around once again to your ag stores. Not like tractor supply. I don't think they're going to have it. It's more of like a co-op, a, co a cooperative type thing. Um, that's where you would get it. Uh, but yeah, I think that's probably the best option. Um, I know that is what Polyface use at least from what I saw, they may use different materials, but Polyface Farms down in uh, Swoop, Swope, however you want to say it, mm -hmm. uh, they, I, I know they do use some polypipe. 
And the other cool thing about polypipe that you might want to consider is let's say you have uh, 500 feet or 600 feet going through a series of paddocks. What you can do is put a T uh, connection in every paddock and you bury a piece of uh, four inch PVC above it so that it essentially creates an access tube that you can cap. And on that T, you can get a quick connect for a garden hose or, you know, whatever kind of hose you choose. You know, a garden hose would be fine in this instance because it's only going a couple feet. But yep. the point of that access tube is you could actually connect the water line uh, and then fill up your, your watering trough in every paddock and you would have no energy use at all. Um, you could do the same thing if you had multiple gardens. So, you know, over that couple hundred feet, you have a garden here. Okay, well, I have a 50 foot or 30 foot garden hose. I'll put one here. After about another 25 feet, I'll put another one here, another one there. And you can just move the same garden hose, you know, down the line to water your entire garden if you're not going to go with like a slow drip irrigation type system. Yeah. So that, I think, that's what I consider the standard. I agree. I think that's definitely the way to do it. Yeah. I say I consider it the standard, but I'm not even close to that. So not like I've got it going on down here either. It's just, I know that is probably the best way that you can do it that I've thought of. And you know, that would be gravity fed, not pumped. So, cause if you're pumping it, it really makes no, you're why pump it through an underground tube if you can just pump it through a garden hose you know, like it doesn't make sense. So um, the gravity fed system would be the way to go, I think, for if you're going to use polypipe. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, the other thing people, I mean, that pretty much covers, in my opinion, how you can move water. I don't believe in hauling water, like on IBC in IVC totes on trailers and whatnot. Cause I mean, one IVC tote, uh, a gallon of water weighs at roughly eight pounds. Um, isn't it 8.6 pounds? 8.3. 8.3. Mm -hmm. We'll just go with 8.3 then. Cause I'm not positive. So 275 gallons of water weighs over a ton. So right there, you know, that's not a lot of water. You can fit probably five, six IVC totes on one trailer, but you know, that's, that's five, six tons you're talking about. And moving that around is not easy, especially on in the places you're normally trying to get water. It's not on a paved road. It's not usually accessible by a truck. And if it is, it's definitely not accessible pulling 10 tons with most <laughs> trucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would pretty much rule that out altogether. I wouldn't recommend it. The only exception being if you're really out there and you want to take some of yourself like sufficiency to the next level, you could probably get away with one or two IBC totes, one of those uh, agricultural uh, pumps, and you could make your own little fire suppression system. Um, I would encourage anyone looking to do that to really reach out to either me or Rob or there's a guy in our discord Beowulf is his name I don't know his actual name but he's a firefighter in Pennsylvania um, I would say once you know what you're doing if you have a fire background you know this you can put out a lot of fire with a little bit of water if you know what you're doing um, you'd be surprised at what you can do with 500 gallons. So you're not stopping your house if it's fully on fire, but you know, if, if your shop caught on fire or a tractor or something like that, you could easily handle that. If you know what you're doing, big caveat there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, um, pretty much, the only ways that I can think of to move water. I don't know if you have any other 
Oh, well, the Ram pump. We didn't talk about that. Yeah. Um, after we hit that, I, I got a, a question to ask you. Oh, no. I have to know something. It's not really a, it's not, it's nothing technical. It's more of a preference thing. Yeah. yeah. So there is another kind of pump that I have been looking into for a couple months now. Um, let me make a note. I'll post a link to the video that explains it uh, visually um, because I'm going to do my best. But essentially, um, I, every, I'm a big fan of mechanical advantages in every shape and form. I think they're awesome. They're underrated. And if everybody understood basic mechanical advantages, they could get a lot more work done than uh, they probably think is possible. Um, that being said, I never considered this being a mechanical advantage, but a ram pump is a no, no power at all, no electricity, no gas, no nothing, just gravity. A ram pump is a pump that takes gravity-fed head pressure um, from a water source and is able to pump it uphill using a series of two clapper valves, essentially, and a capped st vertical stem. Um, and essentially what happens is you take the initial water pressure, that closes a flapper valve and rises up this stem as the air in that stem compresses, because water is not compressible. That is a principle of water I think people should know. You cannot compress water. You can pressurize water, but you cannot compress it. Very different things. You can take that water and that water will compress the air in that vertical stem. Once that vertical stem has enough air pressure, it'll actually push back down you know, expanding because the water has an easier route through a second pipe running uphill. And you do lose some water because once that pressure goes down, the flapper valve opens until you get more pressure from the water from the initial source to close it again. And the process repeats, slowly pumping it uphill to a cistern that you can use gravity again to disperse it around your property. It's slightly confusing without a picture, um, so I'm not going to spend too much time explaining it, but I made a note. I'll post a video in the show notes. Super fascinating stuff, and um, everything that I've seen, you can build one yourself for about $350 uh, in material from your hardware store. So really, really cool option. So I'm actually looking at a very like basic diagram of it right now, and I know like this is not this would not help you a lot as far as like knowing what each part does, but where is, where are you getting the water from that goes into the pump? Is that what you're collecting? And then you're just like feeding it, feeding it to the pump. Yeah. So the, the water source itself can be anything. Um, when you use a ram pump, you lose a lot of water because of that flapper valve opening and closing. Um, so the best water source would actually be like a pond or a stream, something very big, um, because you have to account for that waste. Like one IVC tote is not going to do you any good, really. Um, right. If, unless you... If you have a significant uphill grade to overcome, IBC totes won't be your answer. Um, I, I personally, from my research, what I've seen, you're just going to lose too much water unless you have a massive roof or a massive tarp or something that you're collecting all this runoff from. Uh, you know, it's just not going to be that feasible. So. Uh, you're going to want to look at having a pond or a stream or a river, something that is essentially always there. Um, yeah. So this gets back to the question that I was going to ask you, and it was like, what, do you, what does your, like, finished um, – shit, the word just escaped me. System? 
Yeah, system. Like, what does your finished system look like? And when you first told me about the, the RAM pumps, it kind of gave me the second option I needed to be able to just determine what I would do off the land I have. So, like, for the RAM pump, like, you can, def- you can use it to pump water up hill to a reservoir and then be able to feed, you know, your irrigation system, your house, whatever, the water for the animals and stuff. But if you have, like, and I know we've talked about this in the past too, but if you like built a pond that was, you know, significantly uphill from your house and all in the garden and all that stuff, you can just use gravity fed to, and that would give you plenty of pressure to, to do everything you need to do. Exactly. So at that um, point, like what are the, what do the IBC totes do? The IBC totes, would essentially, it really depends. So in, in an ideal, perfect world, yeah, I would love my pond at the top of my property, 200 feet above everything else. Like right. that would be awesome. Realistically, what I'm seeing when I look at land and you've probably noticed this too, when you go to farms, their ponds are always low. It's just a natural um, low lying spot that they either dam and they run their livestock on the high ground and they just have a pond. Um, so if that, where the ram pump comes in is say you buy a piece of property and the pond's located, um, we'll just say it's a, the total elevation change of the property is a max of 300 feet and the low end is zero above sea level just to make Mm -hmm. it easy so you have 300 feet of change and the Mm -hmm. pond's located at um 100 feet right so you can use the head pressure of the pond to come down 100 feet and then use a ram pump or a series of ram pumps to then push it back up to that 300 foot mark and then you can uh use the ibc containers at the top of your property as your cisterns not as your source, but as your collection area. And you can cover uh, the elevation of 150 to 300 using the ram pump and IBC totes and use the pond itself for everything below 150 feet or whatever it's at. I think I said 150. Yeah. That's interesting because I was, I was thinking like, depending on, on what the property you're buying looks like, if you got like a stream or whatever at the bottom like then the ram pump would be your best option but i i hadn't thought of using a combination of both and i guess you could use the the ibcs as your your reservoir like the water coming from the ram pump back up to the top yeah exactly that's exactly what i would use them for um as far as what my ideal system looks like for where i'm at now um the grade difference between my collection system and the top of my property is so small, I can't justify building a ram pump, running it downhill to pump it back uphill to run it back down to the garden. I just can't because I don't have that big water source. All I have is IBC totes. Right. Um, and the only true renewable water source on my property is a creek down at the very bottom like if we use the same example of zero and 300 my renewable water source is at zero so i can't go any further down i have nothing i have no head pressure to gain from my creek and that creek doesn't even run uh, a majority of the year it's mostly just a uh, a runoff creek where we get a big amount of rain or snow, it all melts, it runs down through the creek, but that's it. I have no, I have no way to capture it and pump it uphill with a ram pump. Um, so for me, the best option was, is uh, install a, essentially move my primary rainwater collection system from the house to the workshop. And the workshop's on the high ground and I can you collect it there off of that roof and it's multiple benefits. So one, that roof is metal. My house is asphalt shingles. So I don't want to drink the water 
right out of my rainwater collection system coming off my house. With a metal roof, if times really got tough, I could. Um, I could use it for a lot more. And for me, it just makes more sense to install or remove, not remove, but essentially make what I have now an auxiliary system of like, hey, this is my backup. I use this for the chickens. I use this for the dogs, um, you know, whatever. But my primary system will be on the highest point of my property, collecting it off that roof. And then I'll have a series of IBC totes there with poly pipe underground running to the gardens for slow drip irrigation. Interesting. But in a perfect world, like I said, I'd buy a piece of property. It would have a pond at the highest point and I wouldn't have to worry about any of this shit. I would just have an overflow pipe, a, uh, a dam with poly pipe shoved through the dam. And then the poly pipe would run all over the property and I would have quick connects wherever I wanted it. I mean, that gravity would be enough to will give you all the pressure you need, right? Yeah. And that's something I wanted to touch on too. So that's perfect segue is a lot of people don't understand uh, head pressure. Uh, I've said it, but I, I didn't really explain it. And head, all head pressure is, is the potential pressure that you have in a water source based on its elevation change. So um, that the way you de determine that is, I mean, it's as simple as this. For every 100 feet of elevation change um, in a water supply, you're going to have 43.4 PSI generated off that 100 feet. So if it was 10 feet, that would be 4.3 PSI. If it was 50 feet, that would be like 22 or something like that. I'm just flying off the top of my head with math. Um, mm -hmm. But essentially, every foot is 0.4 PSI. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much how you determine what you need. And uh, there are formulas to, to take your pressure and calculate your GPM. But to do that, you need the nozzle pressure and it would be much easier to just either get a five gallon bucket at the end of your system, turn it on and see how long you get uh, or how long it takes to fill five gallons. And then you times that by 12 and that's your gallons per minute. Right? No, I'm sorry. Divide, bud. Well, yeah, it depends. So like, let's say it takes for easy math, five seconds to fill a five gallon bucket. That would be 60 gallons a minute, right? Yeah. So that is one way you can test it. The other way you can get a pitot gauge. It's P-O, or I'm sorry, P-I-T-O-T. And that can determine, that'll tell you how many gallons per minute you're getting. Um, there's a couple different ways to do it. I wouldn't use the formula. I would either just get a rough estimate with a bucket and do it that way, or I would actually buy a pedo gauge and do it that way if you wanted. So Yeah, I think for me, you know, buying land, it's either going to be, you know, making a pond, if there's not a natural pond, making a pond at around the highest point. And if, if that's not an option, then a combination of the, a pond and like the ram pump. Yeah. But coming from the top, like even if you had used a ram pump to the top of your property or to the highest point where there was a reservoir, whether that be like a IBC totes or like a, a larger, you know, container reservoir, uh, like that, just the gravity after that should give you, I think, just about all the pressure you would need, um, depending on, on how far you know, downgrade your, what you were trying to supply would be. Right. And so, you know, bringing this full circle, yes, absolutely. But we know that we also get 
uh, 0.4 PSI for every elevation drop. So if you're thinking about it and you hit a, somebody that's done or has a background in um, moving water through hose and they understand how to calculate friction loss, if you're using a garden hose, if you're not exceeding 0.4 PSI every foot, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is if your friction loss is more than 0.4 per foot and you're doing a gravity fed system, you're essentially getting very, very little. Like it's not going to be anything that you're going to really be able to use. It's just not big enough. There's too much friction loss. You need to step that up to, you know, an inch and a quarter, inch and a half, two inch, something like that. Um, and that's, like I said, that's just the biggest thing I see people do. And it's like, well, why doesn't this work? And I've done it too. Like I tried to pump water uphill through a garden hose and it was 150 feet of garden hose with that little itty bitty pump I have. And it just wouldn't do it. It was like one drop every 10 seconds. <laughs> and then eventually it just stopped because it's a centrifugal pump, which means it takes the input pressure, uh, which in my case was head pressure, and it increases it and is able to use that pressure to help push it uphill. But as my water supply drained, my head pressure was becoming lower and lower and lower and lower to the point where once it was like a quarter of the way from the top and only three quarters of the way full, I didn't have enough head pressure to capitalize on it and pump it uphill. Even with an electric pump, it just wouldn't do it. It was too much pressure. It was too much friction loss. So. So you said it was 0.4 PSI for every foot? Right. Of, of, of downgrade? Yes. Okay. It doesn't matter if it's straight down or, you know, that if, if in a perfect world, if you have a line, a completely vertical line, one foot long, you're getting 0.4 PSI of pressure. Mm -hmm. Now, if your elevation gain is a foot of change over six feet, your friction loss has just been multiplied by six, right? Because you uh -huh. still only are getting 0.4 vertical PSI over a foot of elevation change, but it's taking you six feet of hose to get that. So right, okay. Obviously, the steeper the grade, the, the better it'll be because you're not fighting as much hose and fighting as much friction loss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is like one of those things, like I've just, I love talking about it. Um, and I think a lot of people just overlook water in general. Like if you ever, <laughs> if you ever really want to open your own eyes, uh, when the power went out and we didn't have power for days and I had all that rainwater collection, it really showed me how much water we were using. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is, this is insane. Um, we just waste so much water on a day to day basis when it's coming from the well. And uh, yeah. it's it's impressive uh, when you when you see how much you actually use. Most people, I'm sure there's some people that'll listen to this and they, you know, don't. But yeah. so, but yeah, that's pretty much all I've got for uh, you know movement of water and hoses and whatnot. Uh, it, things do get a little tricky when you start splitting the, so let's say you have one pipe and it tees off or wise off into two separate pipes, your friction loss will change a little bit. Um, especially if you start moving, uh, or changing the diameter of the hose, you know, like, uh, I guess maybe you can explain it better, Rob. What I'm essentially describing is the leader line. Like you, you have a section of hose that is bigger, like two and a half inches in diameter, and you 
have that connected to two smaller hoses. Yeah, it's like a like a gated Y. Think of it as like a supply line that is the bigger line, and then it's going to Y off into like two feeders. Smaller, yeah, two smaller diameter lines. And there's, I sh- shit, this is going way back into the calculation. There is a calculation for this. I don't remember what it is, but it does yeah. take an, it does have a significant effect. Yeah, I mean, I have to open uh, my DPO book again. I've got it right here in front of me. I just don't, I don't have it on that page. But I mean, essentially, if at all possible, what you want to do is if you're going to do a system like that, and this is really anything, um, go as big as you can go. Mm-hmm. You know, get the biggest diameter hose that you can get. Um, if possible, you know, a, a three inch is better than an inch and a half. And if you're planning on running smaller lines way out, very distal from the, the origin of your water source, uh, you might want to go up in size on that uh, supply line that is feeding those secondary lines. Uh, but yeah, if you're really, if you're one of those people that is like really into this and you want the formulas and whatnot, you can reach out to me or Rob or like I said, Beowulf on the Discord, I think he's a driver. I know he's a driver. Um, so the the people that drive fire trucks should, <laughs> big, <laughs> big caveat there, should know quite a bit about this. Um, there are people that have absolutely no idea about this that are driving, but um, they are not who you want to talk to. <laughs> So, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, just, you know, if you find or can find an old, a, uh, here's this book I'm reading right now is uh, pumping an aerial apparatus driver slash operator handbook, third edition. It's a textbook from NIFSTA or I'm sorry, IFSTA. <laughs> it's been too long. I F S T A. And, um, you know, look at the principles of water and you, you can really start to uh, understand why what you observe is the way it is. And uh, it gets into atmospheric pressure, static pressure, head pressure, uh, residual pressure, flow pressure. It gets into elevation loss and gain. It talks about friction loss. Um, it, I mean, it's not just put water on the fire in this book. Like it even talks about water towers. It talks about um, multiple connection points at different locations from a static water source that is elevated. Uh, It explains uh, water hammer, um, a lot of good things that are just really good to know. Like I don't particularly want to and I don't particularly have time to read the entire book to you I mean damn it's like 400 pages yeah Um, she thick yeah and I mean right here it even talks about moving water I didn't even I probably should have read this beforehand but you have the direct pumping system which we already talked about uh you know you have a pump runs on gas or electricity and boom you pump it you have the gravity system or you have a combination system. So it's, uh, you know, it's a great resource and it even gets into municipal water supply, like uh, feeders, secondary feeders, distributors, um, different sizes of pipe. Um, I'm probably way deep in the weeds than most people care about by now, (laughs) but uh, Yeah. yeah. So, and I believe, if you can give me one second. Uh, maybe not. I might have to read this after we end and put a caveat in there about um, altitude and how that affects things. It may, I can't remember, um, mostly because when I was doing this, I was at 200 feet above sea level and I didn't have to worry, worry about it. So true. Um, yeah, we, we live 
well, not anymore, but we worked in a pretty low elevation area. So, but yeah, I think that's uh, all I got. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, I think that was a good, you know, topic to cover. It, it's very interesting. Yeah. And it all comes back to, you know, planning and design. The more yeah. you do it ahead of time, the better. And maybe we should have started with the actual collection because um, I don't think we've done a dedicated episode on it. But, I mean. We haven't? Mm, I thought we did a rainwater collection episode. I yeah. I think, I think that was on the old show. Uh, that could be it. But we may have to do one of those. But at the same time, I feel like if you're looking into this, you've already gotten to that point. Like, we don't need to sit here and tell you how to collect water off your roof. I think you understand, like, it flows through the gutter. You just need a container to capture it. Like, that part's pretty simple. And, I mean, you can sum it up pretty easily with don't use a 55-gallon drum, look into overflow flushes, uh, look into system expansion with multiple containers and use gravity. Like that's pretty much the gist of collecting rainwater. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, in fact, I can't think of anything else really about it, but you know, if you look into those concepts a little more on, you know, your favorite search engine or YouTube or something like that, it's, uh, it's pretty simple and, uh, very manageable for anybody with a very basic level of handyman skills. And if you're not handy, this is probably one of those projects that would be really good for you to start because it's not overly complicated. So um, if you're new to homesteading and you're just getting it going and, or you have a piece of land and you're thinking about going this route, this is a very easy first step that you can tackle yourself and then also expand as you learn down the line. Yeah. So good point. But yeah, um, you know, if, if you have questions, you can reach out. Um, we're on Instagram at the Appalachian agorist. Um, if you like the content that we're putting out, you can join our Patreon. Also it'd be Patreon slash, uh, Appalachian agorist. Don't have any new Patreon shout-outs for this week, but um, I think this evening I'm going to be recording another one because um, I meant to do one last week. But if you are a Patreon subscriber, you know by now I am going through hell, for lack of a better term. And uh, it's very difficult to balance things time-wise. So I'm trying. Bear with me. Next couple months are going to be brutal, but uh, I'm hoping now that things are kind of coming together and uh, I'll get back to more regularly scheduled stuff. And then Rob and I will be doing some more Patreon stuff in the future. But yeah, so that's all I got. Yeah. Well, guys, till next time. Place the neon lights in the whiskey.